Hey, if you have a Bible, you can go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to live for the next uh, four or five weeks, and uh, we're starting a brand new series. But to start this series, I have to start today with a bit of a gross story. So I apologize in advance. This is the best I could come up with. Um, it, I will tell you, every week is going to get better from here, but this is the best story I had. So when I was 16, it's a little bit of a long road to get there. When I was 16, I had a bad experience playing hockey, okay? Roller hockey was was the bad experience. I went one time. I never went again because just a short time into the game, a friend who, who was like the hawk in high school, like the incredible hawk, he decided to swing his stick backwards to hit the ball, and I played defense with my mouth. And, and so... I caught his stick in my mouth. I lost a front tooth, sort of lost it. Like, it was there. It was hanging on to the braces that I had. Most people, like, that's, like, most, like I, I thought about this as I was writing this. I thought, you know, most times, kids, if you haven't heard this, students, if you haven't heard this, they'll tell you, don't kiss a boy when you have braces. Don't kiss a girl, because what? You'll lock your lips, right? They didn't tell me that it would happen with a hockey stick, right? That that's, that's actually what happened. So, anyway, when, when they fixed that tooth, they actually did a root canal, put a crown in, sent me back out into the world for a few years till the crown got weak. Anybody had that experience? And the crown got weak. You had to have it replaced again. And then a few more years passed, and the crown got weak, and they had to replace it again. I don't like dentists. If you're a dentist here, Jesus loves you. I don't. That's just the way that it works. So, fast forward to last year, near, nearly 23 years after my bad hockey experience, and right above the tooth, I get this little infection that won't go away. Now, I'll, I'll spare you the gore of that couple months, but the dentist finally said, we need to give you an implant, we'll send you to a surgeon, they'll do a bone graft, and then you'll be fine for the rest of your life. To which I said, why the heck didn't they do that 16 years ago? That would have been a good idea and a lot cheaper. I have some issues with dentists. So anyway, we started that process. And you may remember this. November rolled around. I had the surgery, which was also awful. There are stories there if you'd like to hear those. I will spare you those. Then our whole house got the flu. So in what they told me was 6 to 12 weeks of recovery. It was 12, not 6. They lie to you about the 6. That's not true. I, I, I carried the flu, got pneumonia, and lived each day with what they call a flipper, right? Now the flipper, anybody know what that is? Anybody had a flipper? Okay, so the flipper is a tooth-like material that locks in the gap where they ripped your gums apart to remove the dead stuff, and it sort of fakes people out like you have a real tooth for those 12 weeks while your mouth heals. So I took my flipper for those weeks, and I waited for my mouth to heal, and every once in a while, I'd pull it out, and I'd freak my kids out or make them take selfies with me just because. So I want you to see just how awful this was. Go ahead and bring that up, Wyatt, if you don't mind that picture. That's, that's how good. Go, go ahead and clear it. You can get it off there. So... So after the 12 weeks, I, f are, you, are you looking for mom and dad? Okay, just, they'll, just wait. I see him waving. Go right back there. All right. So after the 12 weeks, I finally got the permanent implant completed. Again, really painful and learned that when you do a bone graft, it also takes time to heal. And along the way, the excess, what they call bone substance, which is disgusting, works its way out. This is the worst part. Works its way out through your gums like little tooth hangnails. Like that's, that's kind of what, what I know. I'm sorry. But you have to feel this a little for me to get over it. If you have a surgery coming up, I am so sorry. Like, it's just... Anyway, finally, about six months after the initial surgery, I was back to normal with a complete mouth, hopefully a tooth implant that will last forever. And when people now talk to me about cosmetic surgery and implants and how the, they're judgmental, like the Hollywood elite, they get their, have all that money to blow and go get implants. I'm like, well, I've had implants. That's what I say. <laughs> there is a point to this. After all this was done, right, 
after my mouth was healing, I was getting used to my tooth, I realized the gums were, and this is a little bit gross too, but not as bad as the hangnails, they, they were shaped differently than they used to be, and the gap between the tooth and the gum was a bit bigger than it used to be, and it created this pocket where flossing became really important every single day. Or else I have what some of you have with your beards, like a storage unit for leftover food, right? <laughs> so, so here's what I want to do. I tell that story to get to this point. How many of you, let's talk about flossing. How many of you have the dentist who tells you you need to floss every day? How many of you, that's, that's your dentist. Just The rest of you are lying or you don't go to the dentist and we're worried about you. How many of you have actually taken that to heart? Like, you are avid, raving fans of flossing. This is confession time. Like, you're just fanatical. You know the statistics that flossing adds 6.4 years to your life. Have you heard that statistic? And you people are very excited about your flossing, aren't you? Now, I looked that research article up, and I want to tell you, in that same article, they also said going to church, dancing, and more sex in your life also improves life. So some of you need to work on those things too. I thought maybe if you do the floss dance after sex, we could live forever. <laughs> I got a snort. <laughs> now, confession time. All right, confession time. Here, here's the other side of this. How many of you wish you flossed more often? Just on it. You wish you, like the dentist says it, you think about it, you plan to do it, then it just kind of becomes the dream that dies, right? Like, that was me. That was totally me. Like, my dentist appointment, the yearly cleaning would be coming up, and I'd start four days beforehand, right? Like, they're not going to know. I'm going to fake them out. And then I'd go, and I'd plan to floss more, and then it died. So here's the thing that I'm getting to today. When my tooth finally caught up to me, and I found this little pocket in my mouth, flossing was no longer optional. It was essential, right? It was absolutely essential because the visible results, if I didn't floss, made it imperative that I did. None of you would sit in the first eight rows, right? It's essential. I didn't need to form a habit because the consequences of not flossing would be consequential, consequential to many areas of my life. Now, I know that's a ridiculous story, but there's a principle in the story that is not ridiculous at all that we all need to hear today. Here it is. When optional becomes essential, the essential happens every single day. When something that's optional in our lives starts to become essential, it starts to happen every single day. Some examples. If you set out and decide, and, and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a half marathon, or I'm going to run a marathon, you have to train. You have to make that an essential part of your life. People will say, well, I need to stop smoking. I need to stop smoking. I need to stop smoking. That's, that's a thing that we want to do. We want to work on. We want to get better at. It's optional until you have a heart attack, and then it's essential. Right? M marriage and communication. You can say, well, we should talk more. We should talk more. We should communicate more. When your wife or your husband files for divorce, then communication is not optional anymore. It's essential. When the optional becomes essential, the essential starts to happen every single day. Now, the problem, the tension that I want you to feel today, that I want you to understand, is that the problem for so many of us is that we have elements of our lives that should be essential. They should be every single day practices, and instead we treat the essential as if it's optional. Flossing statistically adds 6.4 years to your life. How many of you want to die six years early? It's a no-brainer, right? We know so much about eating healthy, and yet we eat like trash as if health is optional to us. Our marriages can and should last almost half a century or more, and yet we talk to our spouses at times where we don't talk to our spouses like it's optional. We have only 18 years with our kids at home, if we're 
blessed. It's less than a thousand weeks, parents. That's less than a thousand weeks. And we waste time like crazy. If your child is a freshman in high school, you have 208 weeks left with them. And we act like that's optional. We treat the essential elements of what it means to do life as if they're optional and they should be essential. Now, here's the thing. We treat the essential elements of what it means to follow Jesus as well as if they're optional. We live our faith lives and following Christ with the things that are essential as if they're optional. And the results of this, listen, the results of this, the results of the church, now I'm not just hammering you today, I'll get there, but the results of the church following Jesus in ways that it seems optional are obvious to us. The church in the U.S. is in drastic decline. We are not even keeping up with population growth. There are three churches in this county alone, I've heard, that are long established that are down to about 10 to 12 people each. We're in drastic decline. We're missing this. The largest population growth when it comes to faith in the U.S. is a population that identifies themselves as none. We have no spiritual belief. We are spiritually not affiliated with anything. We are often, listen, we are often too busy to worship the God who created us regularly. We're too tired. Listen, can I just tell you, can I just, just I don't mean guilt, but I just got to say this out of the bottom of my heart. A 930 service is too early for some of you. It's optional. When we're required, we're living into something essential to follow Jesus, to be with the community of faith. We're not hearing from God regularly because solitude is a lost art. Anxiety and depression are at all-time highs. Kids and students are walking away from faith in droves. Do you recognize this? See, we're starting a series today that we called Every Single Day. Every Single Day. I even did it like the, the kids, every period, single, period, day, period. And we're going to talk about what it means to be a church that practices the essential things, that makes the essential essential and eliminates the optional. Now, a, a couple things about this. The essentials may not be what you think they are. You may think this is going to be a guilt trip series about you got to be in church more, you got to read the Bible more, you got to serve more, you got to do this, all about performance, and we'll hit some of those things. But, but it's not about legalism. The essential things in the life of faith in following Jesus are not about legalism. It's not going to be what you think it are. Here's the second thing I want you to know. If everything is important in the life of faith, then nothing is. We are not Walmart church. We don't have everything cheap. Tell me you'll get that later. There are some things that matter most, right? They, we, we have never been, I want you to know this, we've never been, and this is not a criticism against other churches and their rhythms, but we have never been a church that says, come to Sunday school, come to Sunday worship, come to Sunday night service, come to Wednesday night, come to Friday night small group, come to this, come to that, because I don't want to fill the whole of your life with religious gatherings. I actually want you to come on Sunday, celebrate with each other, then go in the world and be Jesus ambassadors. I don't want you to be religious, because we're not Walmart church, because everything is not important. But there are some things that are essentials. There are certain essentials to being the church. We're going to talk about things like devotion. We're going to talk about things like imagination, things like courage, things like wonder. I believe those are essential parts to what it means to follow Jesus. And here's the thing. When we do those things, when we live into the essentials, we become what I want to label remarkable churches. You know what the word remarkable means? It means striking or worthy of attention. How many of you have friends that don't know Christ, that don't follow Christ? 
How many of you would, some of you are like, I think. How many of you would love it if they started to notice Jesus? Can I just say to you, they're going to notice Jesus when we become remarkable churches, when we become worthy of attention, when we become striking to the world. And so where we're going in this series for the next few weeks is we're going to look at just a few verses from Acts 2 that I believe characterize and show the essentials of the remarkable church. So Acts 2, uh, verse 41 is where I want to look today, but I want to give you a little context to this. Acts 2, verse 41. The context is this. At Jesus' death, when Jesus died on the cross, all of the disciples abandoned him. At that point, they said it's optional. We don't have to follow him anymore. He's gone. They were failures. They were fearful. They were frauds. At his resurrection, they said, you know what? Maybe it is essential. Maybe we should follow him because he's back. And they gathered around him. Their courage was restored. They gathered to him. If you read Acts 1, I'd encourage you to go back and read Acts 1 and 2 this week. In Acts 1, they are with him. They are waiting with him. He says, you're going to be my witnesses to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. You're going to have this mission. By the way, it's essential that you understand you have a mission. That your faith is not just about getting you to heaven. It's actually about your mission here. That's what Jesus gives them. But he tells them, he says, the way you're going to accomplish this mission, I want you to wait. I want you to just wait because the spirit is going to empower you. Wait for the gift that my father gives you. And in the first 40 verses of Acts 2, we see this gift. We see the spirit fall at Pentecost. We see the disciples empowered and Peter gives up, gets up and preached. And they're so remarkable. They're so remarkable. They're so worthy of attention that the crowd listening to Peter goes, these people must be drunk. That's how remarkable they are. It's the Pentecost moment, and they become the remarkable church. At the end of Peter's message in verse 41, here's what it says. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, that, that's a big church all of a sudden. That's a mini church to a mega church in a couple minutes. And then watch what this church does. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now watch what happens as they practice these things. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but that end of verse 47 is the same as the end of verse 41. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, and they did all these things, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's a, that's a Greek writing strategy. That's called an inclusio. Those are bookends saying, pay attention to what's in the middle, because what's in the middle made the things on the end happen. He's saying these rhythms, these things that the church did, God added people because they did these things. This was prompted by the Spirit, but they practiced the essentials. And so I want to say to you, the churches that practice the essentials are really, really, really remarkable. And I want us to be a remarkable church. For, for the next four or five weeks, we're going to break these verses apart and look at the characteristics of the remarkable church. So verse 42, let's zero in on that today. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everybody say devoted. devoted. And I'll say it like you care. Devoted. devoted. There you go. Well done. In this passage, the first thing that we see the writer tell us is that these followers of Christ were devoted. 
right? They were devoted. Now, let me tell you about this word. In the Greek, it's the word proskriterio. Now, it's not prokarsterio, it's proskriterio, right? What this word means, if you pick it apart, pros means toward. Like we're leaning towards something. Carterio means steadfastness, perseverance. This word devoted is about giving attention towards something in a steadfast, in an ongoing way. Jesus uses this word when he tells his disciples, he says, I'm preaching, there's a lot of crowds, they may get a little rowdy, get a boat ready. Be ready with the boat. Be devoted with a proscriterio, the boat. Have the boat ready. Be ready at all times. It was a military word at times. Soldiers, they were told by their generals, be proscriterio. Be ready, be devoted, be focused. See, this is a word that's all about doing little things so when the big things happen, we're ready. Now, some of you get this, and you don't know you get this, right? If you've had a child before, you were proscriterio. Dads, you had the go bag ready. Moms, you had the go bag ready. You told dad to hold it, right? <laughs> you were proscriterio. You had the, the music for the hospital ready to roll. You had been to Lamaze class. The nursery was set up. You read all the baby books, baby wise, baby not wise, baby whatever it was. You read it. You were ready to roll. But then it's about waiting. You were proscriterio, but you were waiting. Some of you are not getting what I'm saying. Okay, guys, I'm going to connect with you here. You're proscriterio when hunting season rolls around. Mm. We're all in. Because you're there, right? Months ahead of time cleaning up the camp. Getting the guns picked apart and clean the food prep. Studying your strategy for hunting by reviewing the trail cams and the salt blocks, you cheaters. <laughs> You're there Sunday night. You're up at 4 a.m. to go sit in the woods. But 9.30 is too early. I work too hard. Some of you are still not with me. You're proscriterio when it comes to college football. You worship at the shrine of Milan Puskar Stadium. And you'll be there to tailgate all day. We're devoted. See, when it comes to the remarkable church, the remarkable disciples today, we're lacking in the devotion. We're lacking in the proscriterio because, and here, here's the thing, write this down if you're taking notes, because today we often equate devotion with emotion. I worked hard on that. <laughs> Many of us equate our devotion with our emotion, and this starts for you in middle school, and some of you never grow up and grow out of it because you got infatuated with someone, little Sally, in seventh grade. I am devoted to her. I wrote her name on my notebook. I love her. What's her last name? I don't know. It'll be mine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and you are devoted for all of three days until Sally meets your friend and she doesn't return your emotion devotion. And so you emotionally devote yourself to someone else. But see, here's the thing. You covenant in marriage, and 30 years after, we're not devoted anymore because the emotion has worn off. If I took your infatuation from middle school and brought it to your marriage today, some of you would fight a lot harder. 
We need this devotion. Today we equate devotion with emotion. But, but devotion is different. Devotion is about more than emotion. It's something that makes us committed. Ask a soldier what it means to be devoted when they're on active duty. You're ready at any time. You do a lot of waiting, but you're ready at any time. It's not about feelings. It's not about emotions. It's not about infatuation. It's disciplined, everyday commitment. Ask the husband, the wife about devotion when hospice care comes in. Ask a parent about devotion when the children are addicts. Marriages suffer today because we cease being devoted. Raising kids today suffers because we cease our devotions. I I want you to grab this. This is what I think. I I think some of us are infatuated with Jesus, but we're not devoted to him. I I think I need to say that again. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you are really infatuated with Jesus. And when you come to worship and things feel good, or you have a mountaintop experience, or you watch a cool YouTube sermon, Everything feels good about that. But when Jesus says, I went day in and day out devotion, the infatuation wears off. See, the first practice of the remarkable church, the essential thing for the remarkable church is disciplined devotion. Devotion to doing the things Jesus did. Right? Imagine what the disciples lost when Jesus left them. Right? Imagine the, the comfort they had when he was back from the dead and how much fear they had when they said, oh no, he's leaving again. He's ascending to heaven. And, he's, and what do we do? And what did he tell us to do? He told us simply to wait. That was the only strategy Jesus gave them. Right? If I took that to a leadership team meeting, hey, what's our strategy for the year? We're going to wait. How long are we going to wait? I don't know. Jesus said, wait, we're just going to wait and see what the Spirit says. We're going to wait. That's all he told them to do. And it was completely Spirit-empowered that the church took off. They saw Pentecost. Go read the rest of Acts 2. And I think you'll find a story of young leaders who had no idea what to do except follow God and his Spirit. Friends, I love all of you, but I am clueless 98% of the time. And I want to just wait on what God says. And they see something explode in their waiting. 3,000 people saved in one day. That's a good waiting. And then what? We got 3,000 new people in our church. What are we going to do? You want to move buildings again? I heard Florida Street's open. What are we going to do? Would they start strategizing? Would they start sitting down, planning on whiteboards? Would they start sitting around, coming up with new programs, new small groups, new Bible studies? A capital campaign. We need capital. We should build a big building. The best they could do, watch, when they would be to keep doing the essential things. They said, 3,000 people saved. Let's get right back to what Jesus did. Let's sit down and be devoted to those things. They were disciplined in this, devoted to proscatario. We're ready. We're going to keep waiting. We're going to keep doing the little things so that we're waiting. And I want to talk to you briefly today about the things they practice because it's these things that are still accessible to us today. As the church, we still have access to these practices. We don't need more strategies, more whiteboards, more cool websites and capital campaigns. We need to be devoted to the things that Jesus did. Here's the first thing. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, the word for teaching there is didash. It's Greek. And it literally means the doctrine. It means the core of what the faith community clung to. They were devoted to the things Jesus taught them. Go love the lost. Go care for the broken. Keep speaking to each other. Keep keep studying the scriptures together. But it says this, and I I love this. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now watch. This means it wasn't just you and Jesus. It was corporate. 
They were sharing life together. They were growing together. It wasn't just the private devotional life. It was actually growing. You guys have heard me say this today. Many of you grew up hearing preachers say, Jesus and me, that's all I need. That's actually heresy. That's actually wrong because Genesis, before sin ever enters the world, God says it's not good for the man to be alone. We need each other. We need to have a corporate life. I don't track church attendance, but I will say to you, you need to be in church together because of the blessing, the richness of sharing in the faith community. By the way, this is what Jesus did. They're practicing the practice of the apostles' teaching, devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's what Jesus did. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 2, 46, when Jesus' parents lose him, right? How good a parent was that? They lost the Messiah in Jerusalem, right? We took him to the city. He's supposed to save the world. We thought that was a good idea. Where is he? Luke 2, 46, it says, after three days. They lost him for three days. They found him in the temple, court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. He was devoted to the teaching. He was growing. He was a 12-year-old boy putting himself in the position of learning. Parents, can I tell you what I'm praying for right now? I'm praying that some of your students begin to lead you in faith. Students? Listen, please, I know that Sundays don't always feel like they're about you, but middle school, high school, college, I want you to hear this. We need you to lead us. Because here's the thing. Your parents are exhausted, and they're worshiping at the idol of secular culture often, and you need to lead them to Jesus spiritually. I'm not saying parents. I'm not saying you don't have good intentions. I'm saying you are pulled, and the peer pressure for parents is way stronger than anything facing students today. And we need, we need students that are going to say, I want to listen to the teacher. I want to understand. I want to ask questions. Parents, you need to be devoted to this, disciplined to this. We need you to lead and do these things like Jesus did, devoted to teaching. So the question, how do we do this? How are you experiencing this? I got really practical things to say. Many of you will come and say, well, you're not very practical. This is a big idea. No, you're welcome because I want you struggling. But really practical today. Here we go. Number one, get a Bible. Get a Bible in your hands. I, I love that you have it on your phone, on your iPad, but start using it. Today we are becoming biblically illiterate because we don't know how to use the Bible. It's point and click, point and click, and that's great. Use it. Go for it. But I would love if you would grab a Bible. I would love if you would actually bring your Bible to church. I would love if you would actually begin to engage, underline, write down, write questions, things that you struggle with. Email me questions. What is it that you're wrestling with? Use it regularly. Connect. Grab a journal, right? Grab a, a, a notebook where you just write down, here are the things that I'm wondering. Your Bible phone app is so cool because you can click a verse. You can make a note. You can say, I don't understand this. Then you can go back and review it later. You need to engage in this teaching, in this learning. Connect. And, and by the way, connect somewhere outside of Sundays as a priority. Make that real. Make that relevant to your life. Right? Whether that's men's ministry, women's ministry, jumping into starting point, getting in a huddle. We're going to start new huddles in the fall. Start your own Bible. If you don't like us, if you don't like me, start your own Bible study. Grow together. Because here's the thing. You're devoted this way to other things. We're so disciplined and devoted to other things. We're so disciplined and devoted to our social media, aren't we? We're checking it 35 times a day. I think that's the average, maybe more. Average, some are high, some are low. We're connecting. Some of you are so disciplined and devoted to your morning coffee. You're disciplined to the sports stats that you're taking in. You're disciplined to knowing all the other stuff about your kids' lives, the grades, the attendance, all that stuff. But you needed to be devoted to the teaching of Jesus because that's what Jesus did. 
Here's the second thing they say they're devoted to. They're devoted to fellowship and food. Now, you'll like this better than the first one until I explain it. If I said to you, go eat with people and spend time together and be devoted to that, we'd be all good. We do that. We're good at going out to eat, sharing meals, spending times with people. That's fun. Covered dish dinners are great. Fellowship lunches in fellowship halls with fellowship groups. But there's more here. There's more to this. See, the word for fellowship has actually been hijacked today to be really about a hall downstairs. It's a fellowship hall. It's not just a hall. It's a fellowship hall. And we do fellowship dinners there versus regular dinners. These are fellowship dinners. Jesus may show up because they're fellowship dinners. But the word for fellowship here is actually this this Greek word koinonia, which is incredibly loaded. It's a word related to community. It's a word related to communion. It, It can be connected to the idea of fellowship, but it also entails the fullness of the dynamic faith community. I, I've got I got to press for time, but Philippians three ten. Maybe maybe skip ahead a couple. Why it says I want to know Christ. Paul says I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You love fellowship. How many of you love food, sharing meals, hanging out with people? Come on, be honest. Awesome. The same word for that is the same word for participation in his suffering. That's koinonia. Koinonia is the food, the breaking of bread, but it's also suffering with Christ. It's the call to be together. See, it's bigger than fellowship because it costs us. It's showing up regularly for each other, revealing ourselves enough to need each other, suffering beside each other. I don't want any hide-and-seek Christians in our church. I want to be in each other's lives. I want to be here regularly. I want to be with each other regularly, showing up when we need each other, pastoring each other there's this principle, if you're taking notes, how, how do you apply this? 531, 531 is the principle. Who are five people you need to be sharing life with regularly that are spiritual friends, people you're walking beside? You say, I don't know them. Then you better jump into starting point or men's ministry or women's ministry because there are people wanting to connect. Who are the five people? Your spiritual friends. Community, by the way, is a discipline. It's not just when it feels good. Who are the three people that you can intentionally pour yourself into? If you don't know who they are, Abby needs volunteers in the kids' town. Stephanie needs volunteers in the youth. There are three kids, three students, I guarantee, that we would love to see you just go spend time with. Pour yourself out for. And then who's the one person that you would like to disciple or be discipled by? Some of you would say, I don't know how to disciple someone. Great, you need to be discipled. We want to walk beside you in that. We've got to be devoted to this, to this fellowship, to breaking bread together. Here, here's the final piece for today, devoted to prayer. And we spent six weeks, just, just the last six weeks, talking about prayer. But are you devoted to it? Are you putting it into practice? Are you taking five minutes every single day to grow in this practice? Friends, we are all devoted to something. We're devoted to our hunting. We're devoted to our pleasure, our leisure, our recreation. We're devoted to spending our money, amen? We're devoted to sports, And those are great. There's nothing wrong with being devoted to other things. But Jesus should be Lord of our devotion. He should be the Lord of our devotion. There's nothing wrong with those things. And the way that you lay those things on the altar and say, God, these are yours. Do with them what you will. When we devote ourselves to him, we start to practice the essentials. I want to close with this. Part of the problem that we have in our churches today, the reason we're in decline, the reason we're not practicing the essentials, is this word that's called clergification. I think it's made up, but I like it. And what clergification has done is put clergy at the center of the church's existence. 
I want to say to you, Paul actually says to the believers, he says, you are a royal priesthood. So so here's what comes out of that. You you actually don't need a priest because you are a priest. You are actually called to the work of, you're actually part of the clergy. You want a robe? You want those stole things to hang on your neck? This is why huddles matter. This is why it matters to be committed to something outside of your schedule. And I would actually say this, and this, this may be a little uncomfortable. I'm sorry if I step on your toes, but, but not really. Some of you need to be inconvenienced by your devotion to Jesus. It needs to mess with your schedule a little bit. Because when we're inconvenienced, we're actually pushed outside of our comfort zone. We actually start learning more than we have for a long time. And to become the remarkable church that does these things every single day, it's going to take that devotion. I'm going to invite the band to come, and we're going to go into this time of communion. But do you know where the fastest growing church is today in the world? Anybody know? It's in Iran. It's in the Muslim country of Iran. That's where the fastest growing church is. They're calling it the Iranian Awakening. One article said the mosques are emptying And the goal of this church, they say, the goal is not planting churches, but making disciples. You're going to hear about this church in a few weeks. One one quote from it said this, "What, what persecution has done to the church was destroy the church that was not disciples. They said persecution has destroyed the church that was not disciples. And it's destroyed the church that was only about conversion. All these church planners found out that converts run away from persecution, but disciples would die for the Lord in persecution. 50, watch this. 55% of the leadership in the church in Iran is female, by the way. Way to go, ladies. I think about eight years ago, I made a little bit of a mistake. I think I planted a church, and I should have planted disciples. And I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> I don't want this. To, my, my, I've kind of just thrown this out there in passing. My kind of secret goal for this, but it's not a secret anymore because I'm telling you, kind of like the tooth, the flipper thing. My secret goal this year is to make Sundays about the least important thing we do. I really don't want to entertain you anymore. I'm going to preach the word and, and we're going to go as hard as we can into what Jesus has. Some of you are going to connect. Some of you are going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I'll say, you're welcome. But if you're looking for comfort, that's not really what we're about because it's not working. I've got friends who don't know Jesus and they're not coming to church. But I have friends who have been impacted by a disciple and they've been transformed. I've seen lives healed, literally in the past year, I've seen lives healed because we did discipleship, because we sat around a table and we listened to somebody and we prayed for them. They were set free. I've seen marriages rescued. I've seen people walk out of decades of sin because we were sharing life together. We were devoted and saying, what is Jesus teaching you? And what are you going to do about it? You are welcome here. Come and hear the preaching, hear the teaching, and let it speak to you and be encouraged and go. But if that's the end of it, I'm just saying to you, you're missing it. You're missing the essentials. You're missing the proscritario because there's some waiting God has for us when we practice the essentials and he wants to do something amazing that's led by his spirit. So as we come to this table today and we practice this thing that literally has been practiced for thousands of years, 
We're practicing something that Jesus said, I want, to, I want you to break the bread and remember my body. I want you to remember what it cost me. I want you to remember the blood that was shed. As you come to communion, by the way, koinonia, that's where we get communion. As you participate in this, in this suffering, there's something that I want you to grab onto. And Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 11, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and they drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ to eat and drink judgment on themselves, that's not a threat. That's Paul saying, understand grace. Grace welcomes you to this table, but don't come to this table lightly. Come devoted. Come committed. Come proscritario, saying, God, I'm here. Help me to follow. Help me to go. Help me to be participating in the sufferings with the community of Christ. Let's pray together.